Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod, the sectarianism proxies and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Sinem Chengiz. Sinem was born and raised in Kuwait, but is a Turkish researcher with a focus on Gulf affairs. She's a PhD candidate in the Department of Area Studies at the Middle East Technical University in Ankara. She spent time affiliated with the Kuwait University with a year-long scholarship funded by the Kuwaiti government, has peer-reviewed articles and book chapters published on Gulf affairs, but most importantly for today's discussion... She's the author of the wonderful book, Turkish-Saudi Relations, Cooperation and Competition in the Middle East, published by Gerlach Press in 2020. In addition to her academic work, over the past decade she's been working in both diplomatic missions and in the media sector. She spent time working at the Embassy of the State of Kuwait in Turkey from 2015 to 2018, and has done uh, a great deal of other diplomatic work and covering uh, Turkish and Gulf news for a number of different uh, media outlets. So, after that long but thorough bio, Sinem, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Simon, for inviting me and hosting this episode. Uh, it's a, a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to chatting. There's there's so many different things to to pick up on, not least, of course, the, the amazing book that's just come out. But before we get into that, I must ask, what, what was it that, that piqued your interest in politics? And after dabbling in, in diplomacy and journalism, why did you decide that, that going into academia might be the way to go for you? No, okay. Well, uh, let me start, Simon, by saying I didn't choose my area of study, but my area chose me. Okay. I was born in Kuwait and have spent many years of my life living there. Of course, having grown up in a Gulf country, um, which had experienced an invasion and later a crisis at its doorstep, for me it was impossible to focus on um, any other region, actually. I had developed a kind of um, personal and intellectual state uh, in Kuwait in particular and in Gulf in general. Although my father was a businessman and uh, we had guests at our home uh, who were foreign journalists uh, who covered the Gulf War at that time and diplomats who served at that time as well. I heard a lot about the Gulf War, you know, uh, and in the discussions at my home. So uh, unlike my friends, um, I was very much interested in politics. Uh, also, my mom, she has Arab roots, traced to Hejaz, and um, although my grandparents lived in Turkey, Arabic used to come before Turkish at their house. So, okay. uh, my passion to study the Middle East, and in particular the Gulf, was very much personal, as you can see. Yeah. Uh, I can never forget those moments, Simon, when we had to stay indoors in safe rooms for weeks while the sirens were alerting us for a possible Iraqi missile attack in early uh, 2003 in Kuwait, when we had to suddenly leave Kuwait uh, to Turkey by land. Uh, unfortunately, I had to uh, also leave behind all my memories in a country which, mm. uh, at least psychologically, was at war again. Of course, uh, as the air route was closed uh, just a month ago and majority of the Turks had left with the last planes and buses, we had to leave by land with my family and pass through three countries, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and Syria, to reach Turkey, uh, which took like three days. Yeah, I so, bet. yeah, I had intrigue. Uh, I had my memories of this old Damascus, Aleppo, 
in my mind. And I took all those memories with me and started a new life in Turkey with my family. Wow. That's quite the story. That's quite the uh, the formative experience and exposure to uh, to Middle East and Gulf affairs. So also the idea to write this book was not only personal, of course, it was also academic. I mean, um, when I say academic is uh, I also had a deep interest in how can I improve my understanding of Turkish Gulf relations and how uh, can I study what I had observed and experienced during my stay in the Gulf? Of course. So, yeah, IR was, all, of course, the only major I wanted to study. So when I completed my undergraduate, uh, I started master program. However, at the same time, I wanted to work at a job. So because multitasking is my greatest motivation, unfortunately. <laughs> right. So, so I can say that the seeds for this book uh, were, uh, were sown in late 2011 while the region was swept out of, the, uh, out of the uprisings. So at that time, I was both a journalist covering stories in post-uprising countries in the Middle East and at the same time a graduate student researching on Gulf affairs. So, um, so while my family was planning for me to be a diplomat, I became a diplomatic correspondent instead. Right. And, uh, I was too lucky, but uh, to work on Turkish-Saudi relations while I was a journalist at that time. So, Sinem, I've got to pick up on on this sort of three-pronged career before we go into the book in more detail, and before we go into the diplomatic side. Where did journalism come from? I mean, you've just mentioned that you were. You had that personal investment in in the region, that personal link and emotional relationship with with affairs across the Gulf and the Middle East, and you were studying that with your um, IR. But then, where did journalism fit into this? Um, actually, I had a lot of internships while I was an undergraduate in like UNHCR, in a lot of think tanks, in uh, Turkish Parliament, in Foreign Ministry, and a lot of places. So I was actually, uh, in my mind, it was to become an academic. But when I started my master's degree in 2011, it was when the Arab Spring happened, as you know. So I was following each and every news very closely as a graduate student. So I found an opportunity to uh, work as a diplomatic correspondent in a Turkish daily, uh, which was uh, very interesting at that time. Uh, they, were, they were looking forward to send someone who knows uh, English, Turkish, and Arabic to the region and uh, to write in English and cover those places. So um, it was very interesting for me to find myself in journalism at that time. And at the same time, it was like whatever I was reading, uh, I was like experiencing it during the day. So it was both-sided. Journalism and academia was going both-sided and very beneficial for me it was. I can imagine. So I guess this question looks forward a little bit to the to the book. But as we're talking about journalism right now, I, I feel I should ask it. But what does journalism bring to your your more academic work? I can see how how the two overlap, but I wonder what does it what does it do for you? How does your your journalism experience shape your academic work and, and the book in particular? Simon, I think there are several important advantages being a journalist and then using it in academia. It introduces many important tools. First of all, you see the realities of the ground better, I believe. When you need to do field work, you definitely use your journalistic skills, such as interview approaches, yeah. adapting yourself 
easily to the country, country's political and social life, having faster writing skills, of course, <laughs> as you always rush with time when you are a reporter for a paper which needs to be published for the next day. So also you follow the daily developments like, uh, like a journalist, you know, and you crazily try to verify uh, every report you need to read before citing it. Yeah. So, these are the good sides, I would say. But Simon, it's also important to admit when you are in area studies and in specific Middle East, it's not always easy to access to people for interviews. Yeah. And also, you need an extra awareness to the political and social um, sensitivities of the region while doing your research, I mean. So, yeah. Saudi Arabia was an interesting case at this point for me. Although, uh, when I started working on this topic in 2014, uh, due to the difficulty of carrying a lot of tasks at the same time, like journalism, the academic studies, and embassy job, I tried to delay the publication of this work for many years. But uh, also, as you know, the rapidly changing dynamics in the region contributes a lot for many of the delays. <laughs> that's, so, that's true, yeah. However, I say better late than never, still. Sure. Well, let, let's go into the book then, Sinem. And I, I think it's wonderful. It's, it's a really interesting area of, of study. Um, and obviously, in, in recent years, it's become a, a really prominent area of of rivalry, um, complex relationships between Riyadh and Ankara. So I wonder if you could tell those that haven't had the, the pleasure of, of reading the book, what is it that you're trying to do in it, please? What's the, the main argument? Exactly. I agree with you, first of all. It has become a very relevant and interesting topic, especially nowadays. Um, when I decided to write my thesis on Turkish-Saudi relations, I was both surprised, actually, and disappointed to see that there was no any book-length treatment of the topic in English, Turkish, or Arabic, despite the growing relations between Turkey and Saudi Arabia in early 2000s. I think, if I'm not wrong, there is still no book on this particular topic. It was at that time either news analysis or articles that we journalists, journalists write of no more than a few pages. So uh, my study, to a large extent, first of all, let me tell that, humbly tries to fill this gap. Of course, uh, whether my book will be successful remains to be seen, but most importantly, I did not want other researchers to face the similar difficulties that I had, because when you, don't, uh, when you lack the literature or when you have difficulties to do the work on the ground, of course, it becomes tough as the first primary uh, study on the topic. Yeah, of course. So it was not only the source of material or related academic work. Uh, my book is a product of my fieldwork. I not only worked on documents like agreements, uh, protocols, joint declarations, but I also tried to conduct in-depth interviews with people who had the knowledge, experience, insider um, information about the topic. So when I visited Saudi Arabia for this in 2014 and uh, 2018, it was not the best times for Turkish-Saudi relations due to the two states' divergence over Egypt in my first visit and, of course, Qatar in my second visit. Yet I was lucky to have sincere discussions still with Saudi diplomats, journalists, and academics. So uh, when coming to the book, basically we are speaking about two different countries with different political systems and different visions for the region. 
Yeah. And of course, the relations between these two countries affect the balance of power in the region and the calculation of regional and international actors. So my book tries to understand the Turkish-Saudi relations on um, three main levels, domestic, regional, and international factors. How did, that, how did these factors influence the relationship? first of all, mm -hmm. because nowadays there's a lot of um, emphasis on domestic politics. But of course, domestic politics serves to analyze the complicated nature of Turkish-Saudi relations. But a comprehensive understanding cannot be grasped, grasped without taking into account the regional and international dynamics, where we see the U.S., Russia, and China as the main most powerful uh, actors. So uh, this was a reason when I wanted to study on the Turkish-Saudi relations, I didn't want to delve into only the domestic politics, but to see how and which events on the regional and international level have affected the relationship. So while doing this, my book focused on three main eras. It was 1990s, early 2000s, and of course the post-2010 era. I had mentioned you this earlier, as you know, Unlike many analysis, which mostly focuses on the last two decades of Turkey's relations with the region and with Saudi Arabia under Justice and Development Party, AKP, in my book, I argued that Turkey's normalization with its neighbors and Gulf states, in particular Saudi Arabia, started earlier, thanks to former Foreign Minister Ismail James' regionally-based uh, foreign policy approach. So I basically argued that AK Party actually found the opportunity to build its Middle East vision on this legacy. Also, the domestic, regional, and international developments provided the ruling party the opportunity to increase its role in the region. So um, in the book, uh, the readers can find uh, further about the period before AK Party and what had been the issues that limited Turkish-Saudi relations and how has all been solved later. So this is one of the main um, points that I always try to focus on in the book. That sounds great. Sinem, can I just jump in and, and ask, can you give us a couple of examples then of, of those types of, of factors, the structural factors that might impact on Saudi-Turkish relations before the, the AK party, please? Surely. I mean, um, now while touching upon 1990s, as a specific era, I also touch upon before that. I um, describe actually Turkish-Saudi relations uh, with the metaphor of uh, roller coaster, if I'm not wrong. <laughs> because we see like the ups in uh, 1970s and 80s, then we see the downs in, in 90s, and then we see another ups in 2000s, and then we see again downs in 2010 and further. So it's also, you know, um, a matter of curiosity for me to see the future of the relationship now, which seems a bit positive. But so um, I think the main important things that had influenced Turkey's relations with Saudi Arabia during the 1990s was its relations with its Arab neighbors. What I mean by is Syria and Iraq due to the PKK issue. And then there was the water dispute with Syria. Yeah. Then this was very important card in hands of Syria that uh, Syria was able to garner the Arab support. Uh, and uh, Saudi Arabia was a leading uh, leading uh, figure supporting Syria on its claims. 
And then we had the Cyprus issue, which is very interesting nowadays, like people uh, argue as if uh, Cyprus and uh, Saudi Arabia's relations with Greece and Greek Cyprus is something new. However, when we check 1990s from the historical perspective in my book, I'm referring to Saudi-Greek relations in depth, and we see that in 1970s, uh, Saudi Arabia has supported the Greek claims on international platforms and even voted for the resolution in favor of Greece. Mm. So there's another uh, important uh, point that I have mentioned about this relationship. So it's very interesting that we need to understand today by looking at the back, because the history somehow repeats itself. Uh, Saudi-Greece relations, or what we see now in the region, for example, a few days ago, Athens-Greece uh, hosted a friendship uh, forum where uh, it, uh, in which it brought together the foreign ministers of Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain, Egypt, and uh, France, and uh, such kind of uh, engagements, Saudi engagements have been happening in the recent years, but this wasn't a new case, that's what I argue. Uh, it wasn't a case in the post-2010 era, it was even before that. A close look for 1990s would be very beneficial in that point, I believe, and also there were some, of course, uh, factors that limits Turkey's uh, relations with Saudi Arabia, but some other regional developments happened that also brought them at the same page, uh, which I wanted—I wouldn't give a detail here now, but uh, 1990 Gulf War had been very important in that point. And mm. then the post-Cold War era, in which both states tried to find a position, find their positions in the new order. So uh, there are some uh, chapters that I have referred Saudi-Turkish uh, kind of, but not so close, but still uh, a very important cooperation that they tried to do during the 1990 Gulf War and during the post-Cold War era. Amazing. It's really, really fascinating stuff, this. So, building on that then, building on those, those particular factors, what impact did the AK Party have on... Uh, on Saudi-Turkish relations then? Because obviously there's uh, there's a dramatic shift in the nature of Turkish politics with the emergence of the AK Party. So how does the, the domestic impact on the um, on the regional, and in particular this, this relationship or this rivalry, depending on how, on how we characterise it? Before going there, let me shortly also... Uh, underline a point. In the book, I also mentioned Turkish-Arab relations from a historical perspective mm -hmm. and how stereotypes and prejudices have influenced the literature, education, media, and academia in two countries. Nowadays, we see a lot, like in, uh, a lot of reports that uh, the same historical prejudices and the stereotypes of the Ottoman legacy and a lot of that stuff has been coming out. However, when you check in deep what has been written in the literature, in Saudi literature and in Turkish literature, what has been taught to the students and how the media has covered the relations between these two countries or how did they perceive each other, it was not so uh, quite positive, I would say. And this had been uh, an impact, and it was hard to change all the stereotypes and prejudices in the new uh, in the new era, which started with the AK Party. Also, in the book, I tried to give extensive information about how military coups in Turkey affected Turkey's relations with Saudi Arabia as well, because uh, a lot of uh, Saudi scholars that I interviewed uh, had mentioned this particular periods, which had really significant impact on Turkey-Saudi relations. Mm. So, 
there was this kind of a legacy before we come to early 2000s. We speak about a Turkey which was having a kind of a secular-minded, security-oriented foreign policy due to the threats it perceives around its neighbors. And then we have Saudi Arabia, which has a very different perception of Turkey and um, with an Ottoman legacy that they have from the past. So there are a lot of factors I tried to identify by looking at the domestic politics, also how it evolved until 2000s, what was happening in Saudi Arabia at that time. For example, as you know, um, there is uh, the Saudi perceptions toward the Muslim Brotherhood. Nowadays, yeah. many are speaking about it, but we need to look again why to 1990s, because uh, in 1990s, I referred to the dissent movement known as Al-Sahwa al-Islamiyah, who were young uh, Wahhabi scholars and religious figures heavily influenced by the Muslim Brotherhood movement. So I had a chapter also focusing on this, how did they had an impact on the Saudi perception of the Muslim Brotherhood in the coming years. So how this was reflected in the 2010, in the post-2010. So, uh, yeah, coming to your question, I would say with this legacy, there happened a significant domestic transformations in Turkey and Saudi Arabia in early 2000s with the AK Party came, coming to power in Turkey with a different Middle East vision. And then we have King Abdullah coming to power in 2005. And while these are all happening, we had 9-11, the, the, the century started with a very unfortunate incident, and then we had the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. So um, these very important four developments happened within very few years and had very significant impact on Turkish-Saudi relations, That um, how both countries handled these cases, what tools they had used, and what prices they had to pay. So in specific and individually, uh, there was another also things that I focused, like there was an instability in Iraq, Israeli-Palestinian conflict was there, chaos in Lebanon was there, and Ankara and Riyadh were having a very close cooperation in OIC and GCC at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, I had some interviews with some Saudis who provided exclusive information on the cooperation of these two countries in OIC, for example. As you may remember... Turkey became strategic partner of GCC as a only first country in 2008. And uh, then a Turk, for the first time, became OIC's head. Uh, for he, uh, he was elected, re-elected, and Saudi Arabia had played a very important uh, role behind closed doors for uh, Turkey's uh, position in this two organization, which was very interesting to observe. Um, those working on Turkish-Saudi cooperation in OIC and GCC can check those parts at the book, which exclusively gives information from the people who were following up closely these cooperation behind the doors, behind mm. closed doors. It's really... And also, very shortly, uh, not to bore the reader about the <laughs> economic aspects of the relationship, of course, uh, I also touched upon the cultural aspect, which is Mm, it is mainly, unfortunately, neglected. Yeah. Like, the role of Turkish soap operas have been very important, actually, what role the Turkish soap operas have played. And the Ottoman heritage, uh, that is the porticos around Kaaba. Uh, in 2014, I had the opportunity to check the construction process around the Kaaba and even see the place where the porticos were moved in Arafat. This was an issue, actually, which has not brought much to the agenda, but it's very interesting because it caused a kind of a um, 
problem between Turkish and between Turkish and Saudi officials for a while. Mm. And uh, it's not much written. Uh, there is no much thing written on this, but it's very interesting. Also, I spared a part for this in the book as well. Well, it's fascinating when you cover that, and I, I do urge people to to pick up a copy of the book. There's so much in there for for everyone. So many different angles that that are covered here. So it's yeah, really, really worth worth your while. Sinem, we must. We've we've been talking for a while, and we've not even got to the, to the more recent parts of the book. Um, so we must skip ahead a few years, and I guess people can can pick up on this in in more detail in the book. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the the more recent past, uh, and I'm thinking in particular here of the the souring in relations between the two states, which was. I guess exacerbated by the um, by the death of Jamal Hashoji. Mm-hmm. So, I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about that, whether there were underlying structural factors aside from the ones that that you've alluded to that are broader in their in their yeah. scope. So, I wondered if you could say a little bit to that, please. Actually, the most recent, as you mentioned, the ruptures in Saudi-Turkish relations can be set down to three main uh, major events. The Gulf crisis, the Kashukju case, and the Kurdish issue, according to me. Because the Gulf crisis um, added salt to the wound, while the Kashukju case became the last nail in the coffin of relations between Ankara and Riyadh. Already, the uprisings not only exposed Turkish, uh, the limitations of Turkey, but not only uh, showed Turkey's limitations, but also showed shortcomings in Saudi policies. So, you, you know that both countries started to have more uh, assertive policies as they started to perceive developments in the region as threats rather than opportunities and started to shift their policies from soft power to hard power. And we saw that these dynamics in the region had a negative impact on the development of the relationship. And the subsequent crisis, as we mentioned, like Egypt, then we had uh, a a lot of new uh, developments that happened in Turkey as well. But I could say that um, these Arab uprising in the post-2010 had shown the um, fact that the two leaderships have ideologically very opposite opposed positions. Yeah. And Egypt serves as the good case to show to the extent that domestic considerations had an impact on the relationship more than regional or international factors. So uh, I could say that while the Kashukji case wasn't yet settled, then we saw the Saudi support for Greek claims, as you know, it's backing to Greek Cyprus against Ankara. Then we had the tension in Eastern Mediterranean and the two blocks that had emerged there, then we know uh, there are some alleged support of the Saudis to Kurdish groups in Syria, which Turkey considers as terrorists. Mm. Besides these all, there are developments regarding Libya, and then there's these two countries' support to opposing parties there. And then we have the Israeli-Palestinian issue. We could say the list goes on and on, unfortunately. But there's also the Saudi uneasiness over Turkey's military operations in northern Syria. Then there is Saudi uneasiness of of, of, uh, Turkey's close cooperation with Russia and Iran through the Astana peace process. Mm -hmm. And then the recent Islamic summit in Malaysia is very important that it were some of the driving forces in uh, the new Turkey-Saudi Cold War. So 
I would say that this tension has reached to a point of media wars as we speak now, that the two countries banned each other's news agencies. Uh, although the relationship did not collapse completely, but we see that the confrontation is there in political media and even in economic fronts. When you check the last four months figures, we see a very sharp decline in Turkish-Saudi trade that you wouldn't even see that with Turkey's trade uh, with Israel or with Egypt at times of crisis. So uh, today the Cold War between these two heavyweights uh, has shown its impact on regional crisis from Syria to Libya, from Iraq to Egypt, and from Horn of Africa uh, to Eastern Mediterranean. Sure. I think that's that's so very important, flagging up the 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 widespread repercussions of this this rivalry across the region and into the Mediterranean as well. But Sinem, if I can ask one final question, if that's okay, please. And it's it's asking you to gaze into a crystal ball a little bit, if that's okay. But where do you see uh, where do you see relations going from here? Oh, as you know, I tried to analyze this uh, Turkish-Saudi relations in three different eras, in three different stages, which we see um, 2000s, then 2011, uh, 2015, and then we see 2015 where Mohammed bin Salman came to power, the Yemen war happened, then Turkey experienced a coup attempt, then there was a change in U.S. leadership, right? Mm. A lot of things had happened in the region. And uh, nowadays, there are some positive signs. However, we shouldn't exaggerate this much, Simon. It is significant to read these developments within a broader context rather than bilateral one. Yeah, of course. It's hard to make predictions on the future of Turkey-Saudi relations because it will depend on developments that are unknown for now. How will the Syrian war unfold? Will the instability in Iraq, Libya, Lebanon, or the war in Yemen end anytime soon? What will be the role of the global actors? So it's a period of uncertainty at the moment, in which both Turkey and Saudi Arabia are calculating the pros and the cons of a possible rapprochement. So here, the regional and international factors will play a great role. First of all, there's a lot of emphasis on the Biden administration. However, Mm -hmm. I'm too cautious about it because Biden administration's intentions are still unknown well. And we remember that there has been some critical developments that had happened during the Obama era, which harmed Turkish and Saudi uh, interests in the region. And therefore, we still need to, we need time to see really, will be the Biden administration the driving force for a possible rapprochement between Turkey? Because there is also now Al Ula declaration, and many in Ankara they believe and argue that the resolution of the problems between Qatar and GCC will have a positive impact uh, on Turkey's dialogue with Saudi Arabia. Right. However, yeah. I doubt that because reconciliation with Qatar um, doesn't really mean reconciliation with Turkey. Because sure. Unlike many experts, I see that Riyadh or Abu Dhabi's expectations from Doha. Um, differs from Ankara. There are many still problems in Riyadh's relationship with Ankara that doesn't necessarily needs uh, time uh, needs time, and it's not necessarily needs very fast uh, solution. We still have Kashyyyk's case, as you mentioned, uh, Libya civil war, and the Kurdish issue, and the Greece Eastern Mediterranean. Just two days ago, there was a tension. Yeah. Turkey had 
condemned what had happened in Athens and said what's been happening there is against Turkish interests. So uh, I believe Muslim Brotherhood is not, uh, maybe Muslim Brotherhood case is the last in this list, not as powerful as before. We have more urgent cases. So it is still early to expect, but I believe that there is still potential uh, room for Turkish-Saudi cooperations. We need to focus on this. Economic sphere is important and regional security is important because there's a problem What I observed that there's a lack of knowledge and comprehensive understanding of each other's priorities, agendas, and capabilities in the region. We need track to dialogue. We need NGOs. We need media. We need academia to engage further uh, to guide the political process. Because what I heard during my field work for this uh, book is that it has been made clear to me actually on several occasions that the relations cannot be developed on a sustainable basis if the two countries cannot get rid of their ideological differences. Mm. So I always say that business must be business or we have to agree to disagree. Like what Turkey has done with Russia, like how Turkey has done with Iran. Like how Gulf countries are doing with Israel at some point now. I know I cannot argue that institutional ties may save the relations because Gulf is having a very different dynamic and neither the Western theories or standards can be applied and be understood. The decision-making process is still not transparent and still uh, personalities matter. Uh, and today, popular politics is in wise, not in Turkey, in Saudi Arabia, in Gulf, or it's in Russia, it's in EU, everywhere. However, uh, while the popular politics is high, this doesn't mean that it brings supremacy to any other country. So, therefore, I think um, the, the, they have to they have to utilize the tools that they had did in early 2000s. Turkey and Saudi Arabia had these differences before. It's not something new. These are two ideologically different uh, countries. But in 2000s, there were a lot of issues that brought them together, like the U.S. invasion and the regional instability. We see the same here now. And we should accept that the personalities who are in power now do not seem to go anywhere soon. And these personalities have enhanced their positions due to the challenges that they faced. As uh, shortly, if you could allow me, I would like to briefly touch upon how uh, Mohammed bin Salman, when he came to power, as you know, he was challenged with a lot of problems, domestic and foreign. Yeah. Like there was a Syrian war ongoing. Uh, there was someone backed by Riyadh in Egypt, but there was a country who was in severe economic crisis. Then there was Libya, which was a torn country between two camps. And there was ISIS, and then there was a lot of Yemen issue. And Saudi Arabia in general needed, Mohammed bin Salman uh, generally needed a hard realist policy. The same happened with Erdogan as well. The developments in Egypt and Syria played a crucial role in transformation of Turkish foreign policy. And already domestically, the country was being challenged by several developments, such as Gezi Park protests yeah. that were spread all around the country in mid-2013. And then we had collapse Kurdish uh, peace process in 2015. And then we had uh, attempted coup in 2016. So Erdogan 
pursued policies to consolidate his power in front of this domestic and foreign challenges. So as you see, there is two leaders playing uh, hard power tools. And um, what we see that this is not going to change anytime soon when the region is driven with these crises. Hmm. There's a lot to ponder there. There really is a great deal to, to reflect on. And I think that the point that you made about the, the various different parts of, uh, of track two projects, NGOs, uh, more formal track one projects for peace building, academics and journalists all coming together to, to figure out ways of, of reducing tensions is absolutely key. But I think that the point you made about understanding the structural factors underneath the rivalry and the structural factors that are shaping all of this that, that you flag up so so well in the book and over the course of this podcast, understanding those are absolutely integral. If any improvements and any any um, reduction in tensions are are um, are to be made. Exactly. And um, of course, we have to see, I think, a kind of like bigger picture, you know, today, all the crises are kind of uh, separate crisis of a larger crisis, let's say the tension, for example, in Eastern Mediterranean, which involves a lot of actors, Western, Arab states, Turkey, Israel, and more. There are a lot of stakes high over there, and no actor wants to take a step back. So we see two different camps. And I believe when you look at the bigger picture, they are all like a domino effect. No, mm. like losing a battle over there will affect the other. For example, if you lose a battle in Eastern Mediterranean, you may lose in Libya, you may lose in Syria. So it seems like for these two camps, there is no any luxury of losing battles. So it is kind of like a reflection of a domino effect. We need to read from this point of view and understand the deep, what are really the intentions of the countries and is there a point, the middle ground that we can find what we did in 2000s? Can we still find that? Well, I hope that there certainly is a middle ground to be found and a way of, of figuring out a reduction in tensions. But I would urge anyone that's interested in, in engaging with these questions in more detail or indeed embarking on, on efforts to, to, to reduce tensions to, to get hold of a copy of Sinem's wonderful book, which is a must-read for anyone wanting to go into, into this topic in any more detail. So, with that in mind, Sinem, we've taken up a huge amount of your time thank you it's been an absolute pleasure i've learned a lot i've got a lot to ponder as i'm sure many other people have um but a, a huge congratulations on the book and good luck thank with the phd so thank you thank Sinem. You so much it was my pleasure and i hope it was useful for the readers or for the listeners and uh, i'm really thankful for this offer that you gave the opportunity to speak it's a pleasure thank you again cinema and as always thank you for listening until next time <laughs>